electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hi, I'm Brian Sullivan, and tonight, guess who's calling who a cheater? Elon Musk turning the legal screws on Mark Zuckerberg's threads, lashing out on what else? Twitter. Amazon CEO speaking out exclusively with CEO at CNBC in the past couple of hours, and he said something that has some tech watchers very excited. A breakthrough in the battle against Alzheimer's. We have the breaking developments. Delivery apps are biting back at the Big Apple. A legal showdown blowing up over New York City's new minimum wage law. And she didn't know he was trouble when he walked in. Everything we thought we knew about the Taylor Swift, Sam Bankman Freed near FTX deal may be getting turned on its head. All that and much more over the hour. So belly up or buckle up because last call is up right now. All right, welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us, as always. And as always, we're going to get to those stories and more over the hour. But first up, a rough day for your money. Stocks taking a hit. The Dow and the S&P posted their worst one day since May. So what may be to blame, if anything? Well, oddly, it might be an economy that remains strong. The ADP jobs number out today, and it popped a lot, showing 497,000 private sector jobs added more than double the median estimate. The fear here is that a hot job market could also keep inflation hot, which could then keep the Federal Reserve raising rates. Inside the market, energy was weak. Exxon, Conoco and others dropping. Consumer names, too, like Caesars, Home Depot, losing investors' money. And on top of that, borrowing costs may also keep going up. Bond yields rose again. The average mortgage rate is now 7.1%. So, of course, this kind of begs the age-old question. Is what's good for Main Street potentially bad for Wall Street or vice versa? And will tomorrow's June jobs number from the Labor Department dump any fuel on that fire or flip things on its head? Let's get to our panel and hit both the jobs and money angles. Chief economist at ADP, Neela Richardson, and managing partner and the head of research at Fundstrat Global Advisors, Tom Lee with us on set. Good to have you, Tom. Neil, I'll start with you. Uh, arguably, I mean, a, a huge number. I looked inside it. You had leisure and hospitality, I think, at 282,000 jobs. You had mining, which is basically oil, adding jobs, construction, adding jobs. What struck out to you inside this number? Hi, great to be with you. Yeah, it was a big report, but it was like, there were some key sectors of the economy all having a moment at the same time. June is traditionally a strong hiring month. It happens pretty much every year uh, when there's not a big pandemic closing things down. And what we were seeing is that the strength came in consumer-facing industries. So leisure and hospitality, that's been strong all year. It's been the stalwart of the recovery. 
education and healthcare had a strong month. That's after showing weakness the previous month with the private sector data. Uh, and so these sectors that are really people-to-people jobs, consumer-facing jobs, saw big retail hiring. Um, those were the ones that took flight. The ones that were more interest rate se- sensitive, like manufacturing, declines, B2P businesses, declines. And finally, Brian, I have to note, 60% of the jobs created in this private sector look at the labor market was were created by firms with less than 50 employees. And they're never going to be seen in your S&P 500 index, but they're keeping this economy afloat and keeping this labor market strong. Is there, Neela, is there any way to know, because this is a little bit of a politically charged debate, as you know, is there any way to actually know how many of these are, quote, new jobs versus still that lag of recovery from 30 million people being laid off or furloughed in 2020? Yeah, it's worth noting that the the places where we saw strength are the same places that were hit the hardest by the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And some of these sectors haven't recovered. If you look at childcare, hasn't quite recovered to 2019 levels. Healthcare, barely there. And so you're really seeing strength in that that place where we felt the losses uh, most strongly. And I think that's an important note. The competition for workers is ebbing. Uh, Supply has gone up for workers. Uh, companies are not having to pay and increase that pay as much to get people in the door as they used to. So it's still, you know, a tight labor market, but we're not seeing the the restrictions and the constraints with hiring mm-hmm. that we used to. Yeah. And, you know, listen, Tom Lee with us on set. And Tom, in 2020, when, when the pandemic hit and jobs got crushed and everybody was terrified, and little, literally, in some cases, for their lives, you became optimistic on equities at a time when it was it was it was grim and probably took a lot of heat for that is my guess it may turn out to become one of the greatest calls in recent history so congrats on that you've also been bullish this year when many of the top wall street mines were not one day does not a trend make are you still optimistic the rest of the year uh yes i think we're seeing signs that the economy is coming back into balance. In fact, this discussion you guys just had on the, the jobs report and the fact that wages aren't accelerating, that's a big point because I don't think we want to A see point which way? What does that tell you? Well, we want to see wage pressures fall because, you know, the Fed wants to see that average hourly earnings down to three. It's at 4%. But the, but we, we also don't necessarily want people to lose jobs. And so that's coming into balance. The NFIB survey that came out today showed only 36% of companies had to raise wages. That's, that's basically a small business survey. Small National business Federation survey. of Independent Business, if our viewers don't know. Correct. And that's the lowest since May 2021. So we're seeing that number come down. And this is sort of a picture of inflationary pressures are ebbing. The Fed can sort of breathe easier if they can show progress. And at the same time, the economy is strong enough to kind of be slipping into an expansion, which I would say is a good environment for stocks. Okay, well, it has been. In fact, let's, let's show that beautiful chart we've got up there on the wall behind you, Tom. S&P 500, up fifth, we'll call it 15% year to date. This is one of the best starts to a year ever. Yes. Why? What's happened? Um, well, you know, I think a lot of this is would be consistent with a new expansion starting. Like it's an mm. early cycle move that last year, the 27% decline in stocks which took 195 trading days, is the type of decline you expect to see in a recession. So I think a recession-type event was priced last year. 
There was a panic bottom in October, and now we've been rallying for 176 days. By July 26th, we'll have rallied 195 days. There's never been a bear market rally that's lasted longer than the decline. Mm-hmm. So by July 26th, we're, it's proof that we're in a bull market. Yeah, and Neil, it's one of these things where, I, you know, from my little perch here, I hate talking about because I want people to make as much money as they can because things are expensive. But is wage inflation, as you see it, as ADP sees it, because you guys are the payroll provider, is it coming down at all? It's coming down. And that is the good Mm. news. That's the silver lining to those who are worried about uh, the Fed decision. We're seeing this really strong uh, job growth at a time where wage growth is finally moving down substantially. Look, we've measured this. We ADP pays about 25 million workers in the United States. That's one in six workers in this country. And we're able to really measure wages and wage growth at a person-to-person level. So it doesn't even matter the composition of jobs created. And what we're seeing is finally, after moving sideways mm-hmm. all last year, there's been significant declines, both for people who stay in the same job and for people who are switching jobs. That is good news. This is not a compromise in the labor market. It's strong growth and steady wage declines. That's mm-hmm. great. It's a great environment for the labor market and for firms. Yeah, in fact, I think if the market heard that message today, we wouldn't have sold off 300 points in the Dow. I, I think the focus today was on the big number of jobs added, but the key is really wage growth slowing. If we get that message reinforced tomorrow in the employment report, I think today's declines get completely reversed. We should have called this segment tomorrow's news tonight, because if Neela's right, and she probably is, then we might see the market reverse and go up tomorrow. Neela Richardson, Tom Lee, great to have you both. Thank, Thank you. you. All right, meantime, inside the markets, your stud and dud du jour. The biggest winner of the day was auto parts maker Borg Warner, up 4%. The biggest loser, a company called Fortrea, down more than 8%. By the way, that's a newbie. It's a recent IBO. Literally, the stock is just a few days old. All right, we have got a lot to get to over this last call, including some potentially very good news for those dealing with Alzheimer's. The breaking developments ahead, plus... The Amazon CEO's rather surprise answer about what's really driving all those Prime subscriptions. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. We referenced it earlier, but now it actually is time for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories that you will be talking about tomorrow morning, CNBC style. First up, a sky-high sandal valuation. LVMH and the private equity firm L. Catterton are considering a potential IPO for German sandal maker and deadhead favorite Birkenstock. Bloomberg is reporting that the brand could be valued at more than $6 billion 
And an IPO could happen within the next year. A company working with advisors from Goldman Sachs and JPM, ongoing public. So far, Birkenstock has made no comment on whether or not an IPO will happen. All right, next up, a major milestone in the fight against Alzheimer's. The FDA moving to approve a drug called Lakimbi. That is a treatment manufactured by ASI and Biogen that considerably slows the progression of Alzheimer's. The move also means the treatment can be covered by Medicare, which will lower costs greatly for the drug. Now, ASI CEO joined CBC's Fast Money just over an hour ago, and here's what he had to say. This treatment is safe and effective for Alzheimer's disease. The benefit risk profile is well established from the large late stage clinical trial. And we believe uh, in year three, about 100,000 individuals could be diagnosed and eligible for this uh, important uh, treatment. Our shares of Biogen are still halted after hours following the news because it's good news. They got to find the right price point. For more on the story, let's bring in Rachel Kors, Stat News Washington correspondent. Rachel, listen, a lot of a lot of families suffering through this a very difficult disease, difficult for the people who suffer and difficult for the families that deal with the people who are suffering as well. How good of news is this potentially today for them? I think this is undoubtedly good news. It's a historic approval. It's the first Alzheimer's drug approved that has shown uh, the ability to slow the cognitive decline of the disease, which is a huge um, advancement. I think there are some concerns about exactly how much patients will notice that progress, but it is undoubtedly progress for patients who are concerned, who are in those early stages of the disease and are who, who are worried about what might be to come. Yeah, and we've got the banner on this says FDA grants first ever full approval. So does this mean this will be on the market presently or are there other regulatory steps that need to be taken? So there are some more regulatory steps that have to be taken. Medicare has decided that that if a physician is going to prescribe this drug and have it be covered by Medicare, that the doctors have to su- supply more data to Medicare about how the medication actually works. And so that is, it's unclear how many patients are gonna be able to get um, this medication through their normal doctors, but there certainly are medical centers across the country that have been prepared for this. They've been working out their systems. The data collection system went live today Mm -hmm. through Medicare. So I think there there is progress toward that, but this isn't a medication that you're just gonna be able to go to the doctor and get on day one. Rachel, do we know how much this drug would cost just out of pocket? So for patients with traditional Medicare, it's about 20% of the list price, which is around $5,000 for a year's um, supply of this medication. However, most patients do have additional coverage that could help get that cost lower. So patients should talk to their insurance companies to figure out what their options are. Sorry, sorry, Rachel, to be dense. Is it $5,000 including Medicare? So like it would be like a $25,000 a year drug completely out of pocket or 5,000 completely out of pocket? So the list price for the drug is $26,500 a year. And Medicare patients that just have the traditional normal coverage would pay about 20% of that, which is around $5,300 a year. Wow, 26,500, but it costs a lot to develop these drugs. We get it. Still a moment of hope for millions of families. Rachel Kors, Stat News, thank you. 
All right, something else that you're likely to be talking about tomorrow is Amazon, because Amazon CEO Andy Jassy sat down with our own John Ford on Closing Bell Overtime for a wide-ranging interview on many aspects of the company. One question that came up, will Amazon ever spin off its Amazon Web Services platform? Listen. What is the possibility, the likelihood, that you're going to spin out AWS from Amazon? I mean, Lena Khan would like it. John, when we're 80 and we get a drink together, you're going to be asking me the same question, uh, whether or not it's relevant or not. But I don't have a new answer for you. We don't have any intention uh, or plan to do so. Now, another topic of conversation, Prime Video, and what role it plays in attracting Amazon Prime Goods subscribers. More and more customers are joining Prime because of the Prime Video benefit. And then when they join... Because um, of the benefit, yeah, not be because of the shipping. Because of the benefit. More and more customers, particularly out of the United States, join because of the Prime Video benefit. And then when they join, they very often will end up shopping in our e-commerce business. So it really drives Prime. All right, joining us now with Reaction is Deepwater Management Managing Partner Gene Munster. I think shorter Andy Jassy is this. People, people come to subscribe and save on toilet paper and get the TV for free. I think that's well put. I was surprised to hear his answer, Brian. If you put it in the context of this uh, concept, he also talked about the economics of their prime business becoming more favorable. You immediately run to the question, if they do a Netflix type, if they're successful to the degree that Netflix is, what does that mean for Amazon's overall business? And not surprisingly, it only has a small impact. Again, they're not going to start charging for Prime. He wasn't suggesting that. This is a loss leader to drive uh, greater engagement on retail, but it would add about 6% to their revenue if they replicated uh, the revenue that comes from, from uh, Netflix, a similar size $50 billion a year business. And so uh, it's a small piece. It was one of the, uh, the pieces of the interview that really caught my attention too. But I think he had a much bigger picture that he was talking about today relative to the long-term opportunity in Amazon. Mm. And in a nutshell, I think what Jesse was saying today, he ended the interview with this, he should have started it, is that from his view is that Amazon still has pole position within not only uh, 85% of traditional brick and mortar is done offline, they could grow that, but 90% of compute is done on-prem and they can move that to cloud. So that I think was, um, even though it didn't grab the headlines, that's the substance of what he's reminding investors with this interview today. It, it, what's, what's weird, you know, I see the Amazon delivery person more than I see my beloved family. I mean, everybody's ordering everything all the time, and yet the stock is $50 less than it was a year and a half ago. Why has, and I know it's off its lows, but still down from its highs, why isn't the stock reacting more to arguably a company that pretty much everybody who wants to use it or can use it does use it? It's because AWS and AWS is call it 10% of revenue, but almost 120% of earnings. And AWS has been going through this rapid deceleration. Uh, so the March quarter, it declined for seven sequential quarters to 16% year-over-year growth. And that compared to Azure and Google Cloud that both grew at 27%. And so they're losing share. And uh, the reason why the stock hasn't performed as well as just that is investors are worried about that. Their guidance for June, they basically framed in, this is rewinding to the March quarter, their guidance for June essentially was for 11% growth of AWS. So it, it went from bad from in March to worse in June. But here's the hope for Amazon investors. And uh, this, I think, is the 
the bull case related to Amazon right now is essentially that that AWS number is going to improve in the September quarter. And it better because you got much easier comps coming in September. And eventually, they're going to have to start attracting some of this AI uh, business that Azure and Google have been so successful. And so that's why the stock's not working. And if you're going to boil it down to the one single pressure yep. point, what could move it? It's AWS. Interesting stuff. And a great interview by John, of course. Gene Munster, we appreciate right it. Thank you. Thank All you. right, still ahead. Could it be a courtroom cage match between Musk and Zuck? Why Twitter is turning up the legal heat on the new threads. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. All right, welcome back. As the graphic says, Twitter is calling out Meta's new Threads social media app in a letter fired off to Mark Zuckerberg. Twitterberg is a Twitterberg. Twitter is accusing Meta of stealing trade secrets. And in response to a tweet about the letter, Elon Musk said this, quote, competition is fine. Cheating is not. Now, the new Threads has already been downloaded over 30 million times since its release just 24 hours ago. That according to Mark Zuckerberg and many online are cheering the new app, hoping it becomes sort of a kinder, gentler version of Twitter. But is Mark Zuckerberg really the answer to Twitter's or social media's problems? Remember, it was not that long ago that fa the Facebook boss was widely criticized for his role in numerous Facebook privacy abuses. He's had to testify before Congress over Facebook's poor data protections, been ordered to pay a record $5 billion penalty to the FTC for violating users' privacy. And just two months ago, they were fined over a billion euros for mishandling user data in Europe. And people have been very open about how they feel about Mark Zuckerberg and how he handles his platforms. Your user agreement sucks. You're a, you, you, you can spot me 75 IQ points. If I can figure it out, you can figure it out. For Mark Zuckerberg, the problem is that he has squandered a lot of trust. This is, a, this is an individual who has control over the content that 2.1 billion people see. Zuckerberg could be with us for 70 years. The board of directors there isn't a board, it's an advisory board. The most powerful and, in my view, dangerous person in the world is the Zuck. Bottom line is that many people seem to think that Zuckerberg, through Facebook and other things, was a risk to safety and privacy. But ever since Elon Musk bought Twitter, that seems to have flipped. Musk, for many, is now the bad guy. And Zuckerberg, through his new media and data platform threads, is somehow now the good guy who will save humanity and the sanity of social media. Because while Zuckerberg is likely to work with big government to help control content, Musk has clearly pushed back on D.C. and its push to control information and, yes, obviously a lot of dis and misinformation that is out there. But if you have actually read some of Meta's privacy provisions, that is the parent company, of course, of Facebook, Threads, Instagram, and WhatsApp, you may raise an eyebrow because when you sign up, 
you give them a ton of access to your personal data, including where you are, what you're looking at, even on other apps, other websites, or even what your friends are doing on their phones and their computers. So should we view Threads and Zuckerberg as some kind of social media savior? Let's take it now to our next guest. Joining us now is Twitter Files journalist and public Substack founder Michael Schellenberger, who literally has been in the thick of this. Uh, Michael, it's amazing. I mean, Zuckerberg was like in many ways the most vilified guy in the world technologically and from a privacy perspective. And now suddenly he's like the brokenhearted savior. Yeah, and I, I think your, your your point is exactly right. I mean, there's a whole set of group of folks that would like to see Zuckerberg censor more. There's a lot of other folks that would like to see him censor less. I, I You may know that on July 4th, there was a major federal court ruling against government censorship of social media companies. It was a sweeping 155-page ruling banning any government contact to the social media platforms. The State Department just announced that they would not be having, or I'm sorry, Facebook announced it would not be having it's meeting with the State Department because of that ruling. Uh, look, I think this ultimately has to go to Congress. The Supreme Court may end up weighing in on that uh, Missouri versus Biden lawsuit. But ultimately, Congress has a responsibility to return to reform of this Section 230, which gives mm-hmm. this really sweeping liability protection to social media companies that news media companies don't get. I think that the exchange needs to be transparency about the decisions that the social media platforms are making in exchange for the Section 230 liability. And I'm gonna get, I want to get to that ruling in just a second, and aside that a lot of people are not maybe talking about Michael, but bringing it back just to the macro commentary about this. And I know, listen, you know Elon Musk, your Twitter files, you and Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss and a bunch of others have done some really good work on that. And, and let's be honest, Twitter is full of a lot of garbage. I mean, that's, there's a lot of hate on there. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of disinformation. But do you think that this sort of anti-Musk, almost pro-Zuckerberg new push is kind of going to be split, maybe not even politically, but kind of between people who want the government or other aspects of things to be sort of, if not censored, but better controlled versus the more libertarian aspect and not taking a side on that. I mean, it's funny because literally right before this interview, I was having an argument with a friend of mine who was arguing that Elon Musk is censoring too much. So there is censorship that goes on. Um, I think, you know, look, you're right. I mean, look, I block a lot of people on Twitter that are just absolutely crazy or they're full of hate and I don't want to have them. So I have that power to block. The question is, do we want the government to tell the social media companies who to block, what to censor? I don't think most Americans want that. I'm pretty sure the courts are going to agree that that's a violation of the First Amendment, particularly if you're threatening the social media companies to take away their license to operate. Mm -hmm. So I think that this desire among a lot of people to want to silence the people around them is not coming from a healthy place. I think there's something wrong with it. We can censor. We can control our own social media experiences through the blocking functions on these social media platforms already. Yeah, and I, I want to I want to pivot to that. What you mentioned this preliminary ruling from that circuit court in New Orleans, where if people aren't aware, and there may be some people that aren't, that this judge, Trump appointed by the way, found that the government and social media companies basically colluded to block certain speech. Now you have been all over this. You've been in the middle of this. You've even gone before Congress to testify about what you found. And here's the reality, Michael. As you know, most of the ruling has been dealing with the content side and vaccines and all this stuff, but. Um, I believe you're a lawyer or have a law degree. I, I have a law degree, but I'm not a practicing attorney. 
This is what stuck out to me in that 155-page ruling. It's what the judge described as fear of retaliation by the government if these companies didn't comply. Now, I'm going to read this. Deep in the decision, the judge wrote this, quote, Plaintiffs argue that defendants have threatened, meaning the government, have threatened adverse consequences to social media companies such as reform of Section 230 immunity, antitrust scrutiny, increased regulations, and other measures if those companies refuse to increase censorship. To me, that was the massive takeaway because I'm thinking, my God, you can disagree with Twitter and Musk all you want, but picture this. Let's say a Republican wins in 24. Republicans take the Senate. Now they have full control. There's something bad and dangerous happening, and they call up Twitter or threads and say, you know what? Suppress that information. People have to flip the script here. If that's true, that the government may be threatening these companies with effectively shutting parts of them down, that's something. Well, and that's right. And I think you're important to point out that the censorship is a double-edged sword. And it's shocking that we have to remind people of this. But, you know, we've had these debates for hundreds of years and Voltaire had it right, which is that I may violently disagree with you, but I would fight to the death to protect your right to express yourself. Uh, we've had wars between Protestants and Catholics. We've seen uh, all sorts of culture wars. We do, we do not want to go down the road of demanding censorship by the government of what other people can say. And you're right, that ruling on July 4th, which was a very strong symbolic statement, I should note, was very powerful because over 155 pages, the judge shows that the Biden administration had threatened the social media companies to take away their Section 230 license to operate. It's what allows them to function as platforms and not like news media yeah. companies. They threatened to take that away if the social media companies didn't censor people, including for just sharing stories and, about vaccine side effects. Well, and, well, and you know, and everybody is so f focused on COVID, obviously, and that was sort of the benchmark and what this ruling preliminary ruling, I should say, which could be overturned. It is probably going to be appealed. Everybody's focused on that aspect because that was the standing effectively. That's what brought this case. And I get that. But to my point, I, you think about basic history. Nixon it lied. We're not dropping bombs in Cambodia. What are you talking? There's no American troops in Laos or Cambodia. We're not bombing those areas when we all know we learned later that certainly we were. And I just you, you have to you have to flip the script, I think, and say, what if this was true on the other side? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Brian. I mean, I think what we're seeing is the abuse of power in many of the institutions of our democracy. We've seen it with the FBI. We saw it with um, NIH trying to call the lab leak theory a, a debunked conspiracy theory when it was always an extremely probable uh, hypothesis. Uh, we saw it with them censoring true stories of vaccine side effects. So we need reform. I mean, we we had a period in the 70s. It does seem to be cyclical, like every 50 years that you that you get this kind of reform that we need to see. And then I do think transparency. It's we don't want the government regulating the social media platforms. But if we're going to give them this wonderful liability protection that they benefit from, which allows them to host so many different uh, people mm -hmm. on their platforms, then they should have to tell us who they're censoring, how they're censoring them, and then give the people the right to appeal when they feel that they're being censored yeah. unjustly. All, all the focus, obviously, on COVID, and there's a lot of mis and dis disinformation, certainly a lot of just lies that were out there for a long time. 
But go 10 years from now, flip the script, and you could have very different things in your head. Michael Schellenberger, good conversation. Really appreciate you coming on Last Call. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, still ahead. From social media to streaming sports wars, and if Apple and Amazon are the new ESPNs. All right, today's RBI hits the world of sports and money and TV because they all kind of go together, right? But they also seem to be on a bit of a collision course. TV and streaming in particular struggling to make money while the cost of sports is going up. Bad combo, especially for companies like Disney's ESPN, which as we know is cutting jobs and costs, no doubt in part because its costs are going up. Listen to this. The current NBA broadcast deal between Disney and Warner Brothers TNT is for $2.7 billion per year. The next deal, which will be negotiated and start in two years, is reportedly going to go for five or more billion per year. Nearly, or maybe, a double. Wow. And it's not just the TV rights that are soaring. So are the player contracts. Because if you have not been following the free agent market, prepare to have your mind blown. Here are some of the recent deals or reported deals that are out there in the market. Grant Williams, the Mavericks, four years, 53 million. Kyrie Irving, also reportedly the Dallas Mavericks, three years, 126 million. The Houston Rockets signing Fred Van Vliet to three years, 130 million. And LaMelo Ball and Anthony Edwards reportedly signing Blockbuster, five-year, $260 million contracts each. That, my friends, do the math, carry the one, is $52 million per year. Salaries have exploded. Compare those five-year deals that we just talked about with Ball and Edwards to, say, all-star Carmelo Anthony. He just retired. And over 19 seasons, Anthony, one of the biggest stars of the sport, made a total of $266 million, that according to basketballreference.com. So two young players, Ball and Edwards, both of whom are 21 years old, are going to make as much money in five years as one of the recent great players made in 19. That is definitely random, but interesting. And it also makes you wonder, with costs going so high and streaming TV profit remaining elusive, can the ESPNs and TNTs and maybe NBC Sports of the world actually pay for it? Or in a few years, will the NBA and many other sports be entirely, not partly, but entirely on Google's YouTube, Amazon, or Apple? Said another way, is Amazon the new ESPN? Let's talk about it with sports business expert, George Pine, the founder and CEO of Bruin Capital, which invests in sports and media companies. George, you get the point. And by the way, those players are great players, not knock, good for them, making the money. I just don't know if, if Disney or Warner Brothers or NBC is willing or able to spend that kind of money. What say you? Well, they've been willing for a long time. The question I think, Brian, is really, are they able to, right? Because what we know is sports drives viewership. And on old media, nothing drives viewership like sports. So the question will be, what is their ability to continue the pace of growth in the rights fees in the future? And the NFL has locked in for 12 years, so they're solidified. And I think you're going to see the NBA do a, do a linear and a streaming package when it's all said and done, which would be, begins a transition. So each sport's slightly different, but I think long-term, 
you're going to see more and more mixed deals going forward. What does that mean? Like, in other words, to watch, because right now the NBA is split between ESPN and Warner Brothers TNT. Is there going to be a day where the NBA is on like five different channels? Or we just, are we going to be able to, maybe you can now, I don't know, pay 400 a year and watch every single Rockets game or whatever it may be? Well, I think you're going to see it like the NFL now. You know, Thursday night is on Amazon. I think on the NBA, you probably have two linear providers, which will also have streaming elements. And then you probably have a streaming provider. I think you're going to see more and more old and new media combos in order to justify the rights fee uh, expansion that you're highlighting, which undercut underpins the uh, salaries of, of the players. Yeah. And, you know, you wonder, listen, Disney's a big company. They're a huge company. They make a lot of money. ESPN, a legendary, probably the most profitable TV network to ever exist. And still, by the way, makes a ton of money. But they can't compete with Apple money. They can't compete with Google money, can they? No, that's right. I mean, the, the balance sheet of Apple, Google, YouTube is quite different than that of Disney. On the one on the one hand, you know, on the other hand, you know, the, what's hurting ESPN these days is the, the subscribers, the cord cutting that's gone on is meaningful. And so ESPN was so valuable. Sports was so valuable. They charged a premium. You want ESPN, you got to take ESPN too. You have to take these other two or three channels. You have to pay this price. Well, as the cord cutting goes on, that pricing power isn't there the way, the way it used to be. And of course, as you point out, these other companies, Amazon, Netflix, YouTube, Apple, they're growing exponentially. So they're going to have more and more clout strong balance sheets. It's only logical yeah. that sports will be a destination for them more and more in the future. You th- yeah, you think about it. I mean, like literally for, for, for NBC or Disney, five billion bucks is a lot of money. Apple, it's like you or I dropping a, a five on the sidewalk. George they, Pine. They, they, By the way, they, random but interesting brother of hokey great Jim Pine. George, appreciate it. Thank yeah. you very much. All right, on deck, a food fight over money, why some big names are suing New York City over worker pay. All right, call this a battle between the apps and the Big Apple. DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, and Relay are suing New York City over its newly passed minimum wage law, arguing the calculus is flawed and will raise prices while limiting worker flexibility. The law goes into effect next week. It will force the delivery companies to either pay workers roughly 50 cents per minute spent on a trip or a set minimum wage just under $18 per hour that they spend on an active trip. Neither accounts for tips. Currently, each app has control over its workers' pay rates, and none of the companies actually employ the drivers. All of them are considered independent contractors, you know, gig workers. The city's Department of Consumer and Worker Protection told the Wall Street Journal, quote, the minimum pay rate will help uplift thousands of working New Yorkers and their families out of poverty. All right. Joining us is former Congresswoman Donna Edwards with us now. Congresswoman uh, Edwards, thank you for joining us. Um, The companies don't want to pay more. Nope. What company does? I get it. The city wants it. Is there a right answer here? Well, I think there is. I mean, we're talking about Um, workers who don't get um, traditional benefits because they're treated as independent contractors. It means they have to meet their own uh, Social Security, Medicare, health care, other kinds of costs. And it's really expensive to live in New York. And these are workers, many of these workers are workers who don't just uh, drive for these companies 
um, full time. They work those jobs and they may have another job as well. Rents are really expensive in New York City. Um, and so, and you know, even if you added up what um, the city is proposing that they pay at 17 bucks an hour, you still fall under the median household, median um, per capita income in New York City. And so I think this is more than fair. It's an example of companies that are making an awful lot of money. And we're just talking about, you know, stopping the taxpayer subsidy of these workers with housing and other kinds of costs and making sure that they're paid a fair wage. I think it's a fair and reasonable proposal. Let's bring in CBC contributor Ben White in addition to the conversation as well. I mean, Ben, listen, I'm a capitalist, but I'll say this, I'll say this. If you're going to order delivery because it's cold and raining outside, maybe don't worry about the fact that your, you know, your lukewarm burger is going to cost you 17 bucks if the person who's riding a bike in pouring rain because you don't want to go out, right, that they get paid. This, yeah, I, can, I, can, I can 100% see the city side on this. Yeah, I can too, Brian. It's good to be with you. Thanks for having me. I think it's hard to argue against, uh, you know, putting the wage up to about 17 bucks for these folks when they're not covered by the minimum wage now. And as the former congresswoman said, not covered by benefits uh, and are not counted as employees, independent contractors. And they do work very hard uh, for wages that really don't keep up with the cost of living in New York. And it's not just New York City. There are other states that are doing this to try to take care of workers for DoorDash, for Uber Eats, for all the places that you know you and I rely on to get our you know game night burgers and our food and, and the rest of it in difficult conditions. And it's actually down. I think their initial proposal was $23. This is a compromise under that. I also think it's really late in the game to be filing this suit when it's about to go into effect, this law. So, And the social media backlash against them for trying to fight against it, I don't think it's really worth no. it. Um, they should probably just suck it up and, and deal with this and pay people a little bit more. But uh, now we'll take the other side because that's what we do, yeah, Congresswoman sure. Edwards, on this program, right? Right down the middle, which is these companies may have to lay people off, right? We do, we do know that higher minimum wages can often result in fewer people working. Well, the reality is, I mean, come on, people are ordering, they're ordering, even since the pandemic, they're ordering um, more uh, delivery. Uh, These companies are making money hand over fist. It's just like the restaurants said when minimum wages were were raised to $15 an hour. Uh, The entire restaurant industry was bemoaning that fact. They said it would result in shutting down business restaurants. That just did not happen. People continue to go out. They uh, pass the cost along. These um, companies continue to make mm-hmm. make money. So I don't think that there's an argument here. And I wouldn't want to be one of these companies going out and arguing to people that they should not be paying fair wages. It's a bum argument. It doesn't right. go anywhere. Yeah. We can't even find anybody to argue against it. No, I mean, we're, I, we all seem to be in agreement, Ben. I mean, listen, here's the reality. If you're going to you know, pop a gummy and an hour later order Uber Eats, pay up. No, I agree with that. And we have to remember, Brian, yeah, just as you've heard uh, through the grapevine, (laughs) that's sometimes what happens in those situations. You get a little hungry. But, uh, you know, we have a very tight labor market here. The idea that they're all of a sudden going to lay off all these drivers and have people to deliver their food. Like, I'm sure you see this, too. Brian, if you order late at night, you know, after your uh, alleged gummy takes effect, that it's sometimes hard to get a get a driver, find a driver. Uh, So there's a tight labor market upward 
you know, wage pressure all over the place. They're not about to start laying off all their drivers. Yeah. It's just a lot of, you well, know, big now, talk. Now it's in the court's hands, and we're going to see what happens. Congresswoman Donna Edwards, Ben White, thank you both very much. All right, coming up, as Taylor Swift says, fakers, they're going to fake, fake, fake. And it almost cost her dearly the wild revelations from a near-mega deal with Sam Bankman-Fried's FTX. Stick around. Look at that. Lucky you. We've got a bonus edition of Tomorrow's News Tonight and some new trouble afoot appearing at Binance. According to Bloomberg, the world's biggest cryptocurrency exchange has lost a number of key executives recently. They include Binance's chief strategy officer, a top compliance executive, and their general counsel, the head lawyer, as well as a significant number of Binance's American employees, apparently, according to the report, also headed for the door recently. All right. Speaking of crypto, much was made about how Taylor Swift did her due diligence on FTX before the crypto exchange imploded last year. However, a new report out today painting a bit of a different story. According to the New York Times, Swift's team signed a sponsorship deal with FTX after more than six months of negotiations. They reportedly talked about a deal worth as much as $100 million. But in the end, it was actually Sam Bankman-Fried who pulled out of the deal, according to the Times. A spokesperson for Ms. Swift declined to comment on that report. One of the authors behind that story joining us now, New York Times reporter David Yaffe Bellany. David, thanks for joining us. We heard that it was basically Taylor Swift's team who was like, something's up here, no thanks. Your reporting and your college reporting suggests it may have been the opposite. Yeah, there was a lot of kind of misinformation swirling around about how this deal came together and then how it ultimately collapsed. And what we found in our reporting is that it was on the verge of going through, that Taylor Swift's team had even sent over the signed documentation to FTX. And then FTX kind of sat on it for a while and eventually decided not to sign. And actually, Swift's team was was really unhappy and disappointed about that outcome. Why, why though? I mean, this is Taylor Swift, arguably the most widely recognized singer songwriter in the world. This should have been a slam dunk. Is there any logical reason why Sam Bankman Freed would say no thanks? Well, I mean, I think it's important to focus on just how expensive this deal would have been. I mean, we're talking, you know, upwards of $100 million, which is a huge fee even for somebody as popular and influential as as Taylor Swift. Um, and so, you know, as appealing as it is to have your company endorsed by her, you have to think about, you know, is it is it worth the price, especially at a time when the crypto market was declining? And as we've since learned, FTX was starting to have a lot of issues of its own. Yeah, but still, again, you know, we, we know that one thing about FTX that we have learned, David, you know, whether it's a $10 million vacation home that somebody forgot that they bought for Bankman Fried's parents, this is not a company that's afraid to spend money at all. That's that's certainly true. And I mean, we've seen many kind of documented examples of that. And there are other big celebrity deals that FTX kind of splashed the cash on. I mean, we wrote this morning about Tom Brady and Giselle Bündchen, who got in total about $50 million worth of FTX equity in exchange for their endorsements. But a $100 million deal is sort of another another level in terms of in terms of costliness. Yeah, truly remarkable story in the New York Times. Urge everybody to go uh, to go read it. You do also wonder, I'm not going to lie, you wonder like Sam Bankman-Fried probably just, if he knew things were going south, he probably wanted to be friends with, with Taylor Swift and maybe he was just kind of warning her off, right? Like, I don't want to lose you as a friend. 
maybe you'd you'd have to ask him about that. Who wouldn't who wouldn't want Taylor Swift as a friend, right? Don't do it. Don't invest. We'll say no. Uh, David Yaffe Bellany, real appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Am I right? All right. Speaking of celebrities, tonight we're honoring one of the most successful movie stars of all time, Sly Stallone. Born 77 years ago today in New York City. Happy birthday, Stallone. He started his career with small roles in a variety of movies, but he became, of course, a household name when he starred in his own movie. He wrote and starred in Rocky. He also played in roles like that. Rambo, they drew first blood, not me. Demolition Man, Cliffhanger, Copland. What about Cobra? Wasn't he also in that over-the-top, the the arm wrestling movie? Anyway, Sly Stallone has made nearly $4 billion in his career. Amazing story. Happy birthday. Thanks for watching Last Call. We'll see you tomorrow night. Shark Tank is next. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.